0: The Missouri, she's a mighty river. welcome to the American writers 100 pages at a time podcast in which I read through the Library of America in you know 100 page chunks working through a lot of the great novels and writing of, of the American tradition so as always thank you for for joining me now currently we are beginning a, a return to where this podcast is Began And that's that's what the works of Herman Melville The the first three books I looked at in this podcast were the first three novels that Melville wrote and it's it's been a year and a half or so since I did that and I think it's time to to go back and to to finish up with the works of, of Melville um, in, a, in a satisfying way. So in this volume of the Library of America we have three novels Redburn, White Jacket and Moby Dick. And it, you know, even kind of setting aside the greatness of Moby Dick for a moment, well, we really have here are three pictures of the American empire at sea in the mid-19th century. One, kind of the, the maritime, the, the commercial in Redburn, and then we have the military, the naval vessel in White Jacket, and then we have the whaling vessel in, in Moby Dick. Um, and so in the previous episode, we, we looked at the first 100 pages or so, a little bit more than that, like a hunt for 110 maybe of of Redburn. um so this is a really great novel it's maybe not one of his most well-known i don't you know i suppose moby dick billy budd Bartleby Olympia the scrivener those are the the ones everyone knows but this one has really got a lot of great stuff in it even though it's it's maybe not as high adventure as some of his earlier pacific stories and compared to to moby dick it doesn't Necessarily reach those those heights that Moby Dick does, but it's got a, really some wonderful prose. It's got some wonderful moments, and I think thematically, this novel talks about capitalism, the emerging capitalist world system, in really interesting ways. Right? That we we have images of the migrations of Europeans to the Americas, the mobile, the, the 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 global market for labor. We he's on a merchant ship that's carrying goods back and forth between. London and Liverpool, right? So we're connected to industrial Britain and connecting America to that. We see the poverty of industrial Europe, especially in the part we're gonna look at today. We see the, 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 the people left behind by this system. And it's the sailors who connect this world together, who move these goods and people around. And it's the sailors who have a window into the dark underbelly of, of that. And, and often they're the victims. And, and I think that's really what Melville is trying to say in this, this book. Is that these are the unseen heroes of our world system, and they're also some of the most victimized and, you know, and exploited of, of all those people. Both exploited, both coming and going in a way, exploited by their bosses and their employers in, in various ways, but also exploited by just other con artists and shopkeepers and people willing to take advantage of them to get their wages when they when they go on shore. And just the, the, the misery we see, especially when they reach Liverpool, yeah, is so powerful. So I really do urge you to, to go and read, read Redburn if you haven't done it yet. But anyways, in the first part of, of Redburn, we've, we, we meet our main character, who's a young man who's looking for a job. He's from a fa- family that has some education and had a middle-class background, but his father died and they've kind of fallen on hard times. He doesn't have a lot of money. So he goes and signs on to the ship as a as a green boy. And then he has to spend much of the first part of the novel as he's on the ship to Liverpool trying to realize where his proper class status is. Is he a member of the forecastle? Is he a member of the Brotherhood of Sailors? With which is not necessarily egalitarian. It has its own hierarchies. We have a character named Jackson, for instance, who does kind of try to dominate that world, even though there is sort of different factions. But it's a much more egalitarian, a much more a a much more um it's it's got a lot of solidarity in it and people work together and they tell stories together and they share what they know they share their knowledge the education of Redburn comes largely through his interactions with other sailors not from the captains and then you know you have of course the bosses it's it's almost like a microcosm of the capitalist system right there on the ship right where you have the class structure you have the conflicts among the working class over ethnicity and race, maybe, and just people trying to dominate one another. But still, it's, it's that working class that makes the system go at the end of the day, right? The, you, know, it's, you get the sense the ship could work just fine without, without the officers. Anyways, Redburn has to then kind of assimilate himself into that world. Learn the skills and learn the rules of of interacting with sailors and he largely does that very quickly it's it's largely a story of success he does have some embarrassments and frustrations and and he's for much of the novel in the early part he's a fish out of water you know he doesn't quite know the rules he comes in with a lot of assumptions about swearing and drinking and smoking that he has to throw away because of just life on the ship but you know by the first third of the novel he has fully entered that world. And he's actually become a fairly capable young sailor. In the second part of Redburn, which we're going to look at today, in this episode, Red Bur- uh, Redburn and the ship arrive in Liverpool. And he's got a lot of time to waste. He's got like a couple months just to hang out. He's got a little bit of wages for his time, but he's mostly just going to sit around Liverpool exploring the city, seeing what's there. And so he's going to get we're going to get a lot of commentary about just life in early industrial England from the point of view of this American sailor coming into Liverpool for the first time. And it's almost like another kind of fish out of water story in which the same way he came onto the ship with all kinds of assumptions about what life was like and then those had to be reformed through experience, he goes to Liverpool with these guidebooks that tell him kind of what to expect and none of it ends up being true and he has to again learn to see this world through his own eyes and through his own experience rather than through through books and through kind of, you know, these, you know, what's been written down generations past. So it, it you know, it's a really interesting section. And uh, as always, thanks for joining me on this. And let's just jump in. I, I'm not quite sure what chapter we left off on. This has a lot of short chapters. But where I really want to focus on to begin with is it's towards the end of their voyage on their way to Liverpool that they, they, they pass the Highlander, the ship they're on, passes by a, a shipwreck. And, of course, this is, a, is kind of a creepy, solemn experience because they know sailors died on here. And it's there's a character that's been kind of with the ship the whole time. Now, Redburn didn't really have a lot of connection to him, but his name is Jackson. Now, most sailors kind of grovel towards him and follow him and take orders from him. He's kind of like an informal... Almost a non-commissioned officer, chosen by the sailors themselves out of his force of will. But not everyone likes him, and Redburn certainly doesn't like him. And he's he's seen as kind of an odious figure all around. But his attitude towards the you know the shipwreck you know presents him as such a barbarian, such a uh, over-the-top barbarian that that Redburn can't help but comment on it, and we get a really interesting description of. Jackson at this point in the novel and this is on page 117 of the library of america version quote every day this jackson seems to grow worse and worse both in body and mind he seldom spoke but to contradict deride or curse and all the time he seemed to his face grew more thinner and thinner his eyes seemed to kindle more and more as if they were going to die out at last and leave them burning like tapers before a corpse Though he had never attended any churches, he knew nothing about Christianity, no more than a Malay pirate. And though he could not read a word, he was yet spontaneously an atheist and an infidel. And during the long winter watches, he would enter into arguments to prove that there was nothing to be believed, nothing to be loved, nothing worth living for, but everything to be hated in the wide world. He was a horrible desperado, like a wild Indian, whom he resembled in his tawdry skin and high cheekbones. He seemed to run amok at heaven and earth. He was cane afloat, branded in his yellow brow with some inscrutable curse. And going about corrupting and searing every heart that beat near him. End quote. You can't read this and not like remind yourself of of Wolf Larsen almost in in the Sea Wolf. Now Wolf Larsen's a much more complex character than Jackson certainly, and has a lot more redeeming characteristics. But that same kind of the brutal, atheistic, uh, kind of fatalistic, almost nihilistic character, you know, at sea. That we have in Wolf Larsen is is kind of here there too, and I, you know, it's 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 might be worth looking at in a more straight up comparison about about these two characters. I, I think a character study of Jackson, which I'm not going to fully do here, would be a very interesting project for for a scholar. I'm sure someone's done it, but you know, it'd be interested in what people could could pick out about. This character of Jackson and what Melville's trying to do with this this character, whether he's drawn from life or not. I, I think a lot of this certainly was drawn from Melville's own experiences. Um, then Redburn, or the narrator, goes into a little commentary about the, the different people on the ship. Now, on the way return voyage from Liverpool, they're going to be basically not have a cargo; they're just going to be full of immigrants, and, and, and that's going to bring into a lot of the interesting drama in the last part of the novel. Is this immigrants? It's kind of the commodity human exchange. It's almost like a triangular trade we have here—not slaves, though, but with like the, the the European working class moving to America. Now, on the way to Liverpool, they have a few like passengers paying. You know, people pay to cross over alongside the cargo and they tend to like they get they have special meals I think they bring some of their own food along and then they, they they interact more with the captain and that's it was something that Redburn wanted to do was to touch base with the captain these people were more of that class of people who would comfortably connect with them we get some conversation and discussion about these including one kind of mysterious woman who fascinates the crew of of the Highlander and, and Redburn has to mention her um, but in chapter 26 when he's done talking about these passengers we get a very important chapter it seems to me it, it's kind of important historically or important if you're interested in labor history it's kind of the, it's also the kind of chapter that maybe you'd skip if you weren't interested in such things but it's called a sailor of jack of all trades where melville sets aside the narrative for a while and talks about what it actually takes to be a sailor and what it's like what does work like on the ship and it's, it's, the important point here is that it's diverse and it requires a lot of skills, and that's something of the pleasure of it. I think contrasted with like a, the industrial workforce, and it's something Melville knew about. He certainly wrote about it in The Tartarus of Maid, so he knows about like machine labor and the drudgery of factory life. It's something he, he's aware of. But here we get a, you know, a, a profession that requires people to kind of fully learn a lot of skills. And learn how to do a lot of different things and and that's something I think we many of us miss out on in this era of hyper specialization where we you know or we one job or one cubicle kind of doing a handful of things for for a whole career the the aura of being a jack-of-all-trades you know whether it's a cowboy or a sailor or an astronaut or whatever I think that's very appealing to people and we see a lot of these kind of figures I think in in culture and we we you know, it's, it's appealing to us and kind of the factory when people were stuck in the factory world, where work is kind of odious and boring, and it's you know full of bullshit jobs to put it uh, to put it in a straightforward way. It, it's kind of a nice chapter, and I'm not going to go through it point by point, but it talks about just what it takes to be a sailor and how Redburn had to kind of learn all these skills, and that's part of what, despite all the shit. Redburn had to endure and as a sailor, it's something that was beneficial to him and and it's something that gave pleasure to that work. One more thing about this is just the, the old saying that like the manager's not brains are in the workman's cap, I mean that comes kind of the factory for factory work before scientific management, right? That the managers really couldn't the idea was the managers couldn't really control the workforce, because the workforce is what had all the knowledge of how to get things done. And so if they said, we're only going to make so many, so much steel today, there's not much the managers do about it. It's only with scientific management that the control of production moved into the hands of, of the, you know, the managers and the people who kind of controlled the shop floor from the top. The ship is very much that way, right? It, you get the feeling that if you just took away the officers, the ship would go on without too much trouble. And then after that, uh, before too long, they, they reach uh, first Ireland, they get a sense of Ireland, they kind of sail past it, and then they, they reach Liverpool and they, and they go into the port. And that's where, you know, for about over, almost a hundred pages, K. Redburn is going to stay in England. So a big chunk of the novel is just about his experiences in, in England, especially in Liverpool, a little bit in London too, but mostly in Liverpool in this, in this dock. And there's another important chapter here, chapter 29, where Redburn talks about the prospects for sailors. And I think here he makes his most overtly political arguments in the book Um, because there is a subtext here that it is the sailors who are driving this world economy. They are pulling the commodities back and forth. They're moving the goods. They're moving the people. You know, you you know, you just having a, a global labor force doesn't matter if you don't have the ability to move people around, right? And they become essential to that, uh, to the global, to the world economy, right? Without them, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, they don't have teleporters that can move these goods around. So that, that we take for granted as we read this, and it's pretty obvious that that's on his mind. But in chapter 29, he goes into about how, These sailors, who are so crucial, get nothing for it. And why is that? Well, first, their wages are very low. But beyond that, the wages that they do get, they get, you know, in Liverpool or wherever they drop off. And he does say that, like, Pacific sailors or whalers had a little better job because because they might be gone for three, four, five years. But, you know, they would just get their wages in a big chunk when they got back. To boston or whatever to then you know nantucket and they you know it'd be a big chunk of change that they could then do something with in their life but these transatlantic sailors they would get a little bit of advance which they would spend and then they would go to liverpool or london or wherever they'd spend that money there and then they'd go back and they get a couple bucks for their trouble right and if they broke any rules or offended the captain in any way they could find and maybe not end up with anything right anything that the captain didn't take for himself and keep would be taken up by people on the docks, um, con artists, boarding house like immoral boarding house you know, owners, shopkeepers, you know, just anyone else who was willing to prey on on sailors. I suppose sex workers were part of it, but that's not something Melville talks about too openly. And then the type of people who become sailors are the very people who are gonna be most easily exploited by this kind of restlessness, because they are a restless type. Even Redburn has a bit of this. Quote, Consider that with the majority of them, the very fact of their being sailors argues a certain recklessness and sensualism of character, ignorance, and depravity. Consider that they are generally friendless and alone in the world, or that they have, if they have friends and relatives, they're almost certainly beyond the reach of their good influences. Consider that after the rigorous discipline, hardships, dangers, and privations of the voyage, they are set adrift to a foreign port and exposed to a thousand enticements which under the circumstances would be hard even for virtue itself to withstand unless virtue went about in crutches. Consider that by the very vocation they are shunned by the better classes of people and cut off from all access to respectable and improving society. Consider all this, and the reflecting mind must soon perceive that the case of sailors as a class is not a very promising one. End quote. But then just a page later, he writes this. These are the classes of men in the world who bear the same relation to society at large that the wheels do to the coach and are just as indispensable. But however easy and delectable their springs upon which the insiders pleasantly vibrate, however sumptuous the hammered cloth and glossy the door panels, yet for all this the wheels must still revolve in dusty or muddy revolutions. No contrivance, no sagacity can lift them out of the mirror, for upon something the coach must be bottomed on something the insights must rule what a great summary of, of just global capitalism in general a uh, really great chapter it's chapter 20 sorry chapter 29 if, if you want to look it up in your your copy of of Redburn um then we get this interesting kind of fish out of water stuff again where Redburn he takes with him these like old guidebooks he got I guess from his father's collection library collection where he thinks ah i'm going to use this i'm going to be master of liverpool because i know where everything is and i got this guidebook telling me and then he basically says that's useless these guidebooks are useless but he does kind of talk about them and examine them and we get these kind of cool you know redburn quotes these are the narrator and we quote these guidebooks to you know show how out of touch they are for the reality of what liverpool is for a sailor right and i don't know if you ever bought one of these kind of tourist guidebooks i I never really have. I've traveled all over the world, but not all over the world, but I've spent a lot of my t- life abroad outside of the United States. And, you know, I, once I had a guidebook, I, when I first went to China like 20 years ago for six, seven months, I, I had a guidebook and like the guidebook didn't give me anything, any useful advice really, you know, that I didn't figure out on my own. And that's kind of what we, we get here. And I don't know, maybe you have had better experience with guidebooks or whatever, but I've never found them particularly useful in, in foreign cities myself. And Redburn very humorously kind of exposes these as, as a rather silly luxury, or kind of a bougie kind of indulgence. Now, certainly he does think, seem to think that, well, he walks around Liverpool and he reflects on history and he, he reflects on the past especially the past of, of like slavery and tr- transatlantic trade and it's it's really some good stuff here. this is on page like 170 of, of my version where he thinks it's basically about s- slavery and he thinks about the connection between like the growth of Virginia and the American colonies and and England and the triangular trade and all that and the role of sailors in that and, and we're, we're kind of thrust back into history as we think about the, kind of the people that read you know like that were Redburn, was comrades with by this point have for centuries been part of, of a system of brutality and exploitation you know, you know, across the Atlantic. And that what he's doing now is, is just an extension of that. Quote And my thoughts would revert to Virginia and Carolina, and also to the historical fact that the African slave trade once constituted the principal commerce of Liverpool, and that the pro- prosperity of the town was once supposed to have been indissolubly linked to its prosecution. And I remember that my father had often spoken to gentlemen visiting our house in New York, of the unhappiness that the discussions of the abolition of the trade had occasioned in Liverpool, that the struggles between sordid interest in humanity had made sad havoc at the firesides of the merchants, estranged sons from squire's sires, and even separated husbands from the wife. And my thoughts reverted to my father's friend, the good and great Roscoe, the intrepid enemy of the trade, who in every way exerted the fine talents towards its suppression, writing a poem several pamphlets in his place in Parliament, he delivers a speech against it, and cool. So yeah, Redburn still pulling himself back to his past, rather than fully embracing his new role as a, as a common sailor, you know, Redburn, poor Redburn, never quite comfortable with his new role in life. Uh, what else is here? Uh, Chapter 34 is kind of interesting. This is about uh, one ship that he learns about when he's in Liverpool called the Irrawaddy, which is uh, basically it's an Indian country ship involved in the trade with, with, with Asia. But it's a ship made by Indians and kind of run by, by Indian workers. So it's not like part of the British East India Company or something. So it's, it's kind of an independent Indian ship run by them. So that, that's kind of a nice little... Addition he throws into the into the story He writes a little bit about the floating chapels and the churches for sailors so often what would happen is they would take like decommissioned ships or ships that really weren't seaworthy anymore and kind of refurbish them and make them chapels in port cities for sailors so sailors would go and could do church services out at sea because they weren't really members of the churches on land, right? They didn't really feel welcome to them, but these would be places where they could feel welcome. I don't know how popular they were, but they all were a part of sailor's life, part of maritime history in the 19th century. I think it was part of the reform the reform push, the effort to kind of raise the standards of, of the maritime working class. Um, but it's really chapter 37, I think, where he goes back into the political and it's called What Redburn Saw, the chapter's called What Redburn Saw in Lancelot's Hay, which is basically like in a, a poorhouse, essentially, with full of like starving, dying people, kind of the left behind remnants of, of England's working class. And it's a very brutal look at this. And, and Redburn meets these people. You see them starving and hungry and begging. He, he runs into these folks because he goes to like a boarding house, a cheap boarding house. And this is kind of in the neighborhood where you have like this urban, uh, this extreme urban poverty. And and it's something he hasn't really seen before in America. And he wasn't really prepared for the, like the, the definition of poor, of poverty was so different across the Atlantic that it's really something that, that, that strikes uh, Redburn here. Quote, I crawled up into the street and looked down upon them again, almost repented that I had brought them any food, for it only tend to prolong their misery without hope or any permanent relief. To die, they must or must. They were too far gone for any medicine to help them. I hardly know whether I ought to confess that another thing occurred to me as I stood there, but it was this. I felt an almost irresistible impulse to do them the last mercy of in some way pulling an end to their horrible lives, and I should almost have done so, I think, had I not been deterred by the thought of the law. End quote. I would remind you when I read that of Oscar Wilde's argument in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which, which argues kind of against charity, not because people are better off dead, but it argues against charity because he, or Wilde does, because it distracts us from actually addressing the root cause of poverty, right? It's, when we give charity, we tend to assume that like poverty is an inevitable consequence of, of of life rather than a product of our unjust system. And, you know, Redburn doesn't quite get that far, but you know he'd certainly understands, I guess the problem of, 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 of mere charity because it doesn't really solve anyone's fundamental root problems. It just it just prolongs their suffering. And I don't know. That's that's kind of what we get. We get Redburn going on different kind of side quests throughout his time in Liverpool, meeting different people. But a lot of it's about him encountering this this. This this world in in Liverpool, a lot of it has to do with him really seeing the other side of of of, of poverty, and you know, moving beyond this, the environment of just being with sailors in that world to seeing the urban unemployed and the beggars and the and just the the poor conditions on the docks for for sailors who come out of it and broke broken and broke in a lot of ways. And and that's kind of what you get. It's a really fascinating section, though. I, I, I think it's one of, it's it's really worth studying and looking at. I, I enjoyed reading this part of, of the novel. But I, I think I'm just going to leave it at that and uh, save my final thoughts on Redburn for for the next episode, where I'll look at the final third of, of the novel, the last 100 pages. That part will deal with his little side quest to London, uh, For some reason, I I think I mentioned the first episode that we're talking about in this episode, but it's it's actually going to show up next time. It's in the last part of the novel where he meets a guy named Harry who drags him to London on a kind of a one-day trip. He eventually returns to Liverpool for the return trip where he encounters all these immigrants who are coming to America from, you know, from England, for obvious reasons, right? Because you just saw how bad conditions were in, in Liverpool. So it's no surprise that people are trying to get out and get to America. So that's going to be his experience. We're going to see the end of some characters and the fate, the fate of Harry, the fate of especially of Redburn, Jackson. They're all got, Their stories are going to be resolved uh, by the time we get back to, to New York. So that's what we're going to talk about next time. I'll give my final thoughts on this, this novel and what I think are some of the major themes. And that's that. That'll be for next time. So if you've read Redburn, if you have any thoughts about the Maritime Working Class, uh, about the way global capitalism was forming in the 19th century, what this novel can tell us about it, or if there's anything else that I'm not saying about this novel that you think I should be talking about, please send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com or you can just leave a review or leave a comment. Um, I would I'd, I'd love to, to hear from you and I'll try to respond to you to whatever you send me. So thanks, as always, for listening. I will see you next time with part three and the finale of my thoughts on Red Redford. At last there came a Yankees is forever.